welcome to The Politocrat. I'm Omar Moore. It is Saturday, July the 22nd, 2023. On this edition of The Politocrat, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. The Mountain Top Speech. The last speech that Dr. King would give in his life. The night before his assassination in Memphis, Tennessee. This is the speech in its entirety. Coming up next. Dear listener, welcome to this brand new edition of the Politocrat Daily Podcast. It is fantastically wonderful and lovely to have you aboard on this Saturday. I hope that your Saturday is motoring along very nicely. Thank you very much. And that whenever you are listening to this episode, that your day or your evening or your night or your morning or afternoon is going the way you would like it to. It's great to have you here. Thank you very much. How are you today? How are you feeling? Well, this world is really becoming and has long been a world that has been really brutal and nasty. And there are the lovely and good moments. And I hope that you can find those moments, dear listener. And I certainly find them where I can. And I certainly ensconce myself in those moments and those memories and those feelings and those events that gives one joy, happiness, pleasure, appreciation, and a sense of being, and a sense of being alive. Because in these times, dear listener, it is very, very rough indeed. Now look, there have been lots of very, very rough times across the epochs of time and across history. We know that. And we are at yet another point of that here now as we continue to go through these points in life, in history, in the world. And we are here in that moment now, across the globe, quite frankly, here in the United States, certainly. And you have the state of Florida now saying that there's going to be teachings of the idea that enslavement of black people was beneficial to them and that black people should be grateful for being enslaved for 300, 400 years. I mean, this is the kind of garbage now, the kind of gaslighting garbage, the very dangerous, extremely dangerous garbage now that Florida is doing. And you have a fascist state that is also promulgating this in other states. You've got other states, whether it's Texas and Oklahoma, it's not going to be another matter of time, really, before you have the rest of those kinds of states, Texas and Oklahoma, and all the rest of these states across the Bible Belt that are going to start this nonsense. And before I get into this speech with Dr. King here, in its entirety, you have to push back against this nonsense, in Florida, you have to push back. You have to push back against it. You have to. And I want to impress upon you, dear listener, the importance of pushback. Because if you, hearing this, do not counteract it, do not decide to do anything at all about it. You give rise to it and you condone it with your silence. You assent to it. So what I would like you to do before I go any further is to contact the Florida Department of Education. And I would like for you, dear listener, to demand that they eliminate, reverse and overturn a directive that says that enslavement was 
beneficial, quote, unquote, to black people. This is something that we all must make the phone calls on. This is outrageously disgusting that you'd have anyone in any period of time saying that enslavement of black people was beneficial to them. And if you or I, dear listener, cannot stand up and push back against that and we cannot make phone calls about that in a day and age where you've got phones and you've got email and you've got internets and you've got social media and you've got all kinds of things that you can use at your disposal to directly contact these folks. If we can't do that, if you, dear listener, or I, dear listener, cannot do that, then shame on us. We are condoning this and it will not stop only at black people. It will be you next, whomever you are. Dear listener, it will be you next. I keep talking about Pastor Nimola. First they came four, then they came four, and then they came for me and there was no one left to speak for me. I keep talking about Pastor Nimola's poem, First They Came, for a reason. This is our time now to push back and fight back and vote in every election that there is. Vote in it. Local elections, state elections, federal election, general election. Vote in every election that comes your way. What I want you to do is call these individuals in Florida, Manny Diaz Jr., Manny Diaz Jr. He is the commissioner in the Florida Department of Education. His phone number, 850-245-9663. And I also want you to call Paul Burns. He is the chancellor of K through 12 public schools. And his phone number, 850 850- 245-0509. You need to call those two numbers immediately. Demand that they overturn this directive in Florida saying that enslavement was beneficial for black people. This is just disgusting. This is the gaslighting. And I'm telling you, this is how Hitler began to do what he did. Start to talk about Jewish people not being human and Jewish people are worse than this and that and the other. This dehumanization and this gaslighting of a whole race group of people, a whole faith, a whole race, a whole person. And a whole group of persons. This is how it started in Nazi Germany. Less than 90 years ago. You have to understand that this is what happened. Less than 90 years ago, dear listener. And we are now seeing the germinations of this again here in the United States. And may I add that Hitler got the vast majority of his ideas about Jewish people, his anti-Semitic tropes. He got the vast majority of those from the United States of America and from the way that the United States of America treated black people and still does. I want you to be very clear about that and be aware of it. He got his ideas from this country. You need to call those two phone numbers now. You need to call Manny Diaz Jr., the commissioner of the Florida Department of Education. Again, his number is 850 245 9663. You also need to call Paul 
Burns, the Chancellor of K-12 Public Schools, 850-245-0509. Call those numbers now. I'll be right back. Welcome back. Dear listener, on April 3rd, 1968, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. gave what would be his final speech. He gave it at Mason Temple Church in Memphis, Tennessee. And in fact, the most interesting thing about that speech that you are going to hear in its entirety, all 43 minutes of it, is that he did not even want to come to the Mason Temple to make the speech. He was in no mood to do it. He was actually in bed trying to get a good night's sleep. I don't think that he was particularly well either. And I mean, in terms of uh, uh, maybe a cold or something he might have had. And he really wanted to get some sleep. He actually was in bed in his pajamas. This is all true story. At his hotel, in his hotel room, in his bed. Because, of course, the next day would be a march with the garbage workers who were on strike down there in Memphis. And so he went down to Memphis, of course, the day before, to be in solidarity with them and to march with them and to stand on the picket lines with them and to express solidarity. These workers who, two of whom had been killed a few days earlier in a horrific, horrific accident involving a trash compactor, and I will leave it at that. Your imagination can move from there. Two of the workers were killed in that accident. And that really was the straw that broke the camel's back. And so the Memphis garbage workers went on strike. The unions, they they said enough is enough. And Dr. King was invited and he accepted the invitation and expressed solidarity with them. In fact, he wanted to be down there. That's where he wanted to be. And so on April the 3rd, 1968, Dr. King, sleeping, getting ready to really look forward to April 4th and to be with these workers, was awakened by a phone call and and a very insistent phone call. I think it was Ralph Abernathy himself who had been speaking, I think, in, in, in Dr. King's stead at the Mason Temple and was telling Dr. King, you have to come out here to the Mason Temple. You have to be here. There are hundreds upon hundreds upon hundreds of people here and they all came here to see you. You have to, you must be here. Trust me on this. And Dr. King did not want to be there. He totally did not. In fact, it was raining, raining really hard, by the way, that night of April the 3rd, 1968. It was raining cats and dogs. And Dr. King kept saying, no, I really can't. I really can't. It's raining. It's miserable. I'm tired. You know, I'm, I need some rest. I may not be feeling too great. I just need to have some rest. I just need to rest and get ready for April 4th to march in solidarity with the Memphis garbage workers who are on strike, supporting their cause. I I just need to be there for them and I need to be ready. I can't be making any more speeches. And again and again and again, the phone call kept being insistent. And... Dr. King was eventually persuaded. He got out of bed, changed back into his clothes, and headed on down to Mason Temple and gave the speech that you are about to hear, dear listener. 
And I am very glad that he gave it. And I think you are too. Now, this is the full speech because this is the full speech that you never hear in the United States corporate news media. You will never hear this speech in full. They always play the very, very end of the speech. Now, the very, very end of the speech is the crescendo, the the finale, obviously. But the most important part of that speech that you are about to hear, the most important part of the speech is the entire 42 minutes and say 58 seconds that precedes the piece that you always hear on radio or on television. And in fact, the way that the news media does it, it's a grotesque disservice to you and to history and to Dr. King to play only the very final piece of that speech that lasts about maybe 30 seconds or less. You need to hear the entirety of the speech and you also need to read the book. Where do we go from here? Chaos or Community? written by Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. That book is an excellent companion to the speech that you are about to hear in its entirety. Let's cast our minds back, dear listener, to April the 3rd, 1968, at the Mason Temple in Memphis, Tennessee. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., The Mountaintop Speech. Thank you very kindly, my friends. As I listen to Ralph Abernathy and his eloquent and generous introduction, and uh, then thought about myself, I wondered who he was talking about. (laughs) It's always good to have your closest friend and associate to say something good about you. And Ralph Abernathy is the best friend that I have in the world. I'm delighted to see each of you here tonight in spite of a storm warning. You reveal that you are determined to go on anyhow. Something is happening in Memphis, something is happening in our world. And you know, if I was standing at the beginning of time with the possibility of taking a kind of general and panoramic view of the whole of human history up to now. And the Almighty said to me, Martin Luther King, which age would you like to live in? I would take my mental flight by Egypt. And I would watch God's children in their magnificent trek from the dark dungeons of Egypt through, or rather across the Red Sea, through the wilderness on toward the Promised Land. And in spite of its magnificence, I wouldn't stop there. I would move on by Greece and take my mind to Mount Olympus. And I would see Plato, Aristotle, Socrates, Euripides, and Aristophanes assemble around the Parthenon. I would watch them around the Parthenon as they discuss the great and eternal issues of reality, but I wouldn't stop there. I would go on even to the great heyday of the Roman Empire. 
And I would see developments around there through various emperors and leaders, but I wouldn't stop there. I would even come up to the day of the Renaissance and get a quick picture of all that the Renaissance did for the cultural and aesthetic life of man, but I wouldn't stop there. I would even go by the way that the man for whom I'm named had his habitat. And I would watch Martin Luther as he tacked his 95 theses on the door at the Church of Wittenberg, but I wouldn't stop there. I would come on up even to 1863 and watch a vacillating president by the name of Abraham Lincoln finally come to the conclusion that he had to sign the Emancipation Proclamation, but I wouldn't stop there. I would even come up to the early 30s and see a man grappling with the problems of the bankruptcy of his nation and come with an eloquent cry that we have nothing to fear but fear itself. But I wouldn't stop there. Strangely enough, I would turn to the Almighty and say, if you allow me to live just a few years in the second half of the 20th century, I will be happy. Now, that's a strange statement to make because the world is all messed up. The nation is sick. Trouble is in the land. Confusion all around. That's a strange statement. But I know somehow that only when it is dark enough can you see the stars. And I see God working in this period of the 20th century in a way that men in some strange way are responding. Something is happening in our world. The masses of people are rising up, and wherever they are assembled today, whether they are in Johannesburg, South Africa, Nairobi, Kenya, Accra, Ghana, New York City, Atlanta, Georgia, Jackson, Mississippi, or Memphis, Tennessee, the cry is always the same, we want to be free. And another reason that I'm happy to live in this period is that we have been forced to a point where we are going to have to grapple with the problems that men have been trying to grapple with through history, but the demands didn't force them to do it. Survival demands that we grapple with them. Men for years now have been talking about war and peace, but now no longer can they just talk about it. It is no longer the choice between violence and nonviolence in this world is nonviolence or non-existence. That is where we are today. And also in the human rights revolution, if something isn't done and done in a hurry, to bring the colored peoples of the world out of their long years of poverty, their long years of hurt and neglect, the whole world is doomed.
Now, I'm just happy that God has allowed me to live in this period to see what is unfolding. And I'm happy that he's allowed me to be in Memphis. I can remember... I can remember when Negroes were just going around, as Ralph has said, so often scratching where they didn't itch and laughing when they were not tickled. But that day is all over. We mean business now, and we are determined to gain our rightful place in God's world. And that's all this whole thing is about. We aren't engaged in any negative protest and in any negative arguments with anybody. We are saying that we are determined to be men. We are determined to be people. We are saying... We are saying that we are God's children. And that we are God's children. We don't have to live like we are forced to live. Now, what does all of this mean in this great period of history? It means that we've got to stay together. We've got to stay together and maintain unity. You know, whenever Pharaoh wanted to prolong the period of slavery in Egypt, he had a favorite, favorite formula for doing it. What was that? He kept the slaves fighting among themselves. But whenever the slaves get together, something happens in Pharaoh's court, and he cannot hold the slaves in slavery. When the slaves get together, that's the beginning of getting out of slavery. Now, let us maintain unity. Secondly, let us keep the issues where they are. The issue is injustice. The issue is the refusal of Memphis to be fair and honest in its dealings with its public servants who happened to be sanitation workers. Now, we've got to keep attention on that. That's always the problem with a little violence. You know what happened the other day, and the press dealt only with the window breaking. I read the article. They very seldom got around to mentioning the fact that 1,300 sanitation workers are on strike and that Memphis is not being fair to them and that Mayor Loeb is in dire need of a doctor. They didn't get around to that. we're going to march again, and we've got to march again, in order to put the issue where it is supposed to be. And force everybody to see that there are 1,300 of God's children here suffering sometimes going hungry, going through dark and dreary nights, 
wondering how this thing is going to come out. That's the issue. And we've got to say to the nation, we know how it's coming out. For when people get caught up with that which is right and they are willing to sacrifice for it, there is no stopping point short of victory. We aren't going to let any may stop us. We are masters in our nonviolent movement in disarming police forces. They don't know what to do. I've seen them so often. I remember in Birmingham, Alabama, when we were in that majestic struggle there. We would move out of the 16th Street Baptist Church day after day. By the hundreds, we would move out, and Bull Connor would tell them to send the dogs forth. And they did come. But we just went before the dogs singing, ain't gonna let nobody turn me around. Bull Connor next would say, turn the fire hoses on. And as I said to you the other night, Bull Connor didn't know history. He knew a kind of physics that somehow didn't relate to the trans physics that we knew about. And that was the fact that there was a certain kind of fire that no water could put out. We went before the fire hoses. We had known water. If we were Baptists or some other denomination, we had been immersed. If we were Methodists and some others, we had been sprinkled. But we knew water. That couldn't stop us. And we just went on before the dogs, and we would look at them, and we'd go on before the water hoses. And we would look at it, and we just go on singing, over my head, I see freedom in there. And then we would be thrown into paddy wagons, and sometimes we were stacked in there like sardines in a can. They would throw us in, and old bull would say, take them off. And they did, and we would just go on in the paddy wagon singing, we shall overcome. And every now and then we'd get in jail and we'd see the jailers looking through the windows, being moved by our prayer and being moved by our words and our song. And there was a power there which Bull Connor couldn't adjust, adjust to. And so we ended up transforming Bull into a steer and we won our struggle in Birmingham. We've got to go on in Memphis just like that. I call upon you to be with us when we go out Monday. Now about injunctions. We have an injunction and we're going into court tomorrow morning to fight this illegal, unconstitutional injunction. All we say to America is be true to what you said on paper. If I lived in China or even Russia or any totalitarian country, maybe I could understand some of these illegal injunctions. Maybe I could understand the denial of certain basic First Amendment privileges because they haven't committed themselves to that over there. But somewhere I read of the freedom of assembly. Somewhere I read of the freedom of speech. Somewhere I read of the freedom of press. Somewhere I read that the greatness of America is the right to protest. All right.
so aggressive, I say we aren't going to let any dogs or water hoses turn us around. We aren't going to let any injunction turn us around. We are going on. We need all of you. You know what's beautiful to me? is to see all of these ministers of the gospel. It's a marvelous picture. Who is it that is supposed to articulate the longings and aspirations of the people more than the preacher? Somehow the preacher must have a kind of fire shut up in his bones. And whenever injustice is around, he must tell it. Somehow the preacher must be an Amos. He said, when God speaks, who can but prophesy? Again with Amos, let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like a mighty stream. Somehow the preacher must say with Jesus, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. And he's anointed me to deal with the problems of the poor. And I want to commend the preachers under the leadership of these noble men, James Lawson, one who has been in this struggle for many years. He's been to jail for struggling. He's been kicked out of Vanderbilt University for this struggling, but he's still going on fighting for the rights of his people. Reverend Ralph Jackson, Billy Kyle, I could just go right on down the list. It's time will not permit, but I want to thank all of them. And I want you to thank them. Because so often, preachers aren't concerned about anything but themselves. And I'm always happy to see a relevant ministry. It's all right to talk about long white robes over yonder in all of its symbolism. But ultimately, people want some suits and dresses and shoes to wear down here. It's all right to talk about streets flowing with milk and honey. But God has commanded us to be concerned about the slums down here and his children who can't eat three square meals a day. It's all right to talk about the new Jerusalem, but one day God's preacher must talk about the new New York, the new Atlanta, the new Philadelphia, the new Los Angeles, the new Memphis, Tennessee. This is what we have to do. Now, the other thing we'll have to do is this. Always anchor our external direct action with the power of economic withdrawal. Now, we are poor people. Individually, we are poor when you compare us with white society in America. We are poor. Never stop and forget that collectively, that means all of us together, collectively we are richer than all the nations in the world with the exception of nine. Did you ever think about that? After you leave the United States, Soviet Russia, Great Britain, West Germany, France, and I can name others, the American Negro collectively is richer than most nations of the world. We have an annual income of more than $30 billion a year, which is more than all of the exports of the United States and more than the national budget of Canada. Did you know that? 
That's power right there if we know how to prove it. We don't have to argue with anybody. We don't have to curse and go around acting bad with our words. We don't need any bricks and bottles. We don't need any Molotov cocktails. We just need to go around to these stores and to these massive industries in our country and say, God sent us by here to say to you that you're not treating his children right. And we come by here to ask you to make the first item on your agenda fair treatment where God's children are concerned. Now, if you are not prepared to do that, we do have an agenda that we must follow. And our agenda calls for withdrawing economic support from you. So as a result of this, we're asking you tonight to go out and tell your neighbors not to buy Coca-Cola in Memphis. Go by and tell them not to buy sealed test milk. Tell them not to buy what is all the bread, Wonder Bread. What is other bread come to dressing? Tell them not to buy hard bread. As Jesse Jackson has said up to now, only the garbage men have been feeling pain. Now we must kind of redistribute the pain. We are choosing these companies because they haven't been fair in their hiring policies, and we are choosing them because they can begin the process of saying they are going to support the needs and the rights of these men who are on strike, and then they can move on town, downtown and tell Mayor Loeb to do what is right. And not only that, we've got to strengthen black institutions. I call upon you to take your money out of the banks downtown and deposit your money in Tri-State Bank. We want a bank-in movement in Memphis. Go by the Savings and Loan Association. I'm not asking you something that we don't do ourselves in SCLC. Judge Hooks and others will tell you that we have an account here in the Savings and Loan Association from the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. We are telling you to follow what we are doing. Put your money there. You have six or seven black insurance companies here in the city of Memphis. Take out your insurance there. We want to have an insurance in. Now, these are some practical things that we can do. We begin the process of building a great economic base. And at the same time, we are putting pressure where it really hurts. I ask you to follow through here. Now let me say as I move to my conclusion that we've got to give ourselves to this struggle until the end. Nothing would be more tragic than to stop at this point in Memphis. We've got to see it through. 
When we have our march, you need to be there. If it means leaving work, if it means leaving school, be there. Be concerned about your brother. You may not be on strike, but either we go up together or we go down together. Let us develop a kind of dangerous unselfishness. One day a man came to Jesus. And he wanted to raise some questions about some vital matters of life. At points, he wanted to trick Jesus and show him that he knew a little more than Jesus knew and throw him off base. Now, that question could have easily ended up in a philosophical and theological debate. But Jesus immediately pulled that question from midair and placed it on a dangerous curve between Jerusalem and Jericho. And he talked about a certain man who fell among thieves. You remember that a Levite? And the priest passed by on the other side. They didn't stop to help him. Finally, a man of another race came by. He got down from his beast, decided not to be compassionate by proxy. But he got down with him, administered first aid, and helped the man in need. Jesus ended up saying this was the good man, this was the great man, because he had the capacity to project the eye into the bow and to be concerned about his brother. Now, you know, we use our imagination a great deal to try to determine why the priest and the Levite didn't stop. The times we say they were busy going to a church meeting, an ecclesiastical gathering, and they had to get on down to Jerusalem so they wouldn't be late for their meeting. At other times, we would speculate that there was a religious law that one who was engaged in religious ceremonials was not to touch a human body 24 hours before the ceremony. And every now and then we begin to wonder whether maybe they were not going down to Jerusalem, down to Jericho rather, to organize a Jericho Road Improvement Association. That's a possibility. Maybe they felt that it was better to deal with the problem from the causal root rather than to get bogged down with an individual effect. But I'm going to tell you what my imagination tells me. It's possible that those men were afraid. You see, the Jericho Road is a dangerous road. I remember when Mrs. King and I were first in Jerusalem. We rented a car and drove from Jerusalem down to Jericho. And as soon as we got on that road, I said to my wife, I can see why Jesus used this as the setting for his parable. It's a winding, meandering road. It's really conducive for ambushing. You start out in Jerusalem, which is about 1,200 miles, or rather 1,200 feet above sea level. And by the time you get down to Jericho, 15 or 20 minutes later, you are about 2,200 feet below sea level. That's a dangerous road. In the days of Jesus, it came to be known as the Bloody Pass. You know, it's possible that the priest and the Levite looked over that man on the ground and wondered if the robbers were still around. Or it's possible that they felt that the man on the ground was merely faking. And he was acting like he had been robbed and hurt 
in order to seize them over there, love them there for quick and easy seizure. And so the first question that the priest asked, the first question that the Levite asked was, if I stop to help this man, what will happen to me? But then the Good Samaritan came by, and he reversed the question. If I do not stop to help this man, what will happen to him? That's the question before you tonight. Not if I stop to help the sanitation workers, what will happen to my job? Not if I stop to help the sanitation workers, what will happen to all of the hours that I usually spend in my office every day and every week as a pastor? The question is not if I stop to help this man in need, what will happen to me? The question is, if I do not stop to help the sanitation workers, what will happen to them? That's the question. Let us rise up tonight with a greater readiness. Let us stand with a greater determination. And let us move on. In these powerful days, these days of challenge, to make America what it ought to be, we have an opportunity to make America a better nation. And I want to thank God once more for allowing me to be here with you. You know, several years ago, I was in New York City autographing the first book that I had written. And while sitting there autographing books, a demented black woman came up. The only question I heard from her was, Are you Martin Luther King? And I was looking down writing, and I said, Yes. The next minute, I felt something beating on my chest. Before I knew it, I had been stabbed by this demented woman. I was rushed to Harlem Hospital. It was a dark Saturday afternoon. That blade had gone through, and the x-rays revealed that the tip of the blade was on the edge of my aorta, the main artery. And once that's punctured, you're drowned in your own blood. That's the end of you. It came out in the New York Times the next morning that if I had merely sneezed, I would have died. Well, about four days later, they allowed me, after the operation, after my chest had been opened and the blade had been taken out, to move around in the wheelchair in the hospital. They allowed me to read some of the mail that came in, and from all over the states and the world, kind letters came in. I read a few, but one of them I will never forget. I had received one from the president and the vice president. I've forgotten what those telegrams said. I'd received a visit and a letter from the governor of New York, but I've forgotten what that letter said. But there was another letter that came from a little girl, a young girl, who was a student at the White Plains High School. And I looked at that letter, and I'll never forget it. It said simply, Dear Dr. King, I am a ninth grade student at the White Plains High School. She said, while it should not matter, I would like to mention that I'm a white girl. I read in the paper of your misfortune and of your suffering, and I read that if you had sneezed, you would have died. And I'm simply writing you to say that I'm so happy that you didn't sneeze. And I want to say tonight, I want to say tonight that I, too, am happy that I didn't sneeze, because if I had sneezed, 
I wouldn't have been around here in 1960 when students all over the South started sitting in at lunch counters. And I knew that as they were sitting in, they were really standing up for the best in the American dream and taking the whole nation back to those great wells of democracy which were dug deep by the founding fathers in the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. If I had sneezed, I wouldn't have been around here in 1961 when we decided to take a ride for freedom and ended segregation in interstate travel. If I had sneezed, I wouldn't have been around here in 1962, when Negroes in Albany, Georgia, decided to straighten their backs up. And whenever men and women straighten their backs up, they are going somewhere because a man can't ride your back unless it is bent. If I had sneezed, if I had sneezed, I wouldn't have been here in 1963. Black people of Birmingham, Alabama, aroused the conscience of this nation and brought into being the Civil Rights Bill. If I had sneezed, I wouldn't have had a chance later that year in August to try to tell America about a dream that I had had. If I had sneezed, I wouldn't have been down in Selma, Alabama, to see the great movement there. If I had sneezed, I wouldn't have been in Memphis to see a community rally around those brothers and sisters who are suffering. I'm so happy that I didn't sneeze. And they were telling me. Now it doesn't matter now. It really doesn't matter what happens now. I left Atlanta this morning, and as we got started on the plane, there were six of us. The pilot said over the public address system, we are sorry for the delay. But we have Dr. Martin Luther King on the plane. And to be sure that all of the bags were checked, and to be sure that nothing would be wrong on the plane, we had to check out everything carefully. And we've had the plane protected and guarded all night. And then I got into Memphis. And some began to say the threats. I talk about the threats that were out. Or what would happen to me from some of our sick white brothers. Well, I don't know what will happen now. We've got some difficult days ahead. But it really doesn't matter with me now, because I've been to the mountaintop. And I don't mind. Like anybody, I would like to live a long life, longevity, has its place. But I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. And he's allowed me to go up to the mountain. And I've looked over. And I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you. But I want you to know tonight that we as a people will get to the promised land. So I'm happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. My eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. It doesn't happen like we think it does. No one rolls the tanks. No armies meet in pitched battle. It happens quietly, little by little. And because so many think it can't happen, it does happen. Little by little, the rules change. 
It doesn't seem shocking or sudden. And that's the point. Fewer places to vote, longer lines. Don't worry, they say. We're just improving the system. They hope we won't notice the rules are changing because they lost the last election. They hope we just won't care enough to stop them. They believe they can take America away from us, and we won't even notice. We know who they are. We know what they want. The question is, who are we? Do we let them get away with it, or do we fight? Democracy is on the ballot. Vote while your vote still counts. The Lincoln Project is responsible for the content of this advertising. The loveliness of Paris Seems somehow sadly gay The glory that was Rome Is of another day I've been terribly alone And forgotten in Manhattan I'm going home To my city by the bay I left my heart In San Francisco Tony Bennett, yes, the one, the only Tony Bennett. Tony Bennett, I left my heart in San Francisco. Tony Bennett passed away yesterday at the age of 96. And I should say, I was fortunate enough to see him in concert about 20 years ago here in San Francisco. Um, Tony Bennett was one of the greats. He really was one of the great vocalists of of uh, all time. I really do believe that his arrangements, his styles, his vocalistic style um, was very, very, um, it was just really beautiful. It was great to hear him. Um, has lots of connections to Frank Sinatra, was a contemporary of Sinatra. By the way, he also marched with Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Actually, he was friends with Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Lent his name and, and joined Dr. King in marches. And there's some video and certainly some some images of that, if you look for them, of Tony Bennett, a younger Tony Bennett, uh, walking stride by stride alongside Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Tony Bennett was very passionate about human rights, civil rights, and certainly was a member of that activist community in the civil rights struggle. And he was someone who put himself into those causes and someone who was very much anti-war, a pacifist at heart. He has never, never did sing the Star Spangled Banger, Banner, <laughs> Banger, yeah. I mean, he never did sing that anthem of this country. The rockets, red glare, the bombs bursting in air. That was not something that Tony Bennett subscribed to. Tony Bennett was someone who believed in peace, was fervently anti-war, somebody who would not put his name or perform in situations that glorified war or championed it. He was very much someone who believed in a peaceful, humane world. And Tony Bennett spread his joy and his heart's passion, which was to sing and entertain people all across the world, which is exactly what Tony Bennett did for a 70-year stretch a superb career, a longevity career, a career that spanned, as I said, generations, at least 70 years of performances by the one, the only, the incomparable Tony Bennett. Somebody who um, had many popular songs and hits, some of my favorites, Rags to Riches, of course, I Left My Heart in San Francisco, which he did in 1961. That, of course, is my favorite of all favorites that I have of his. And also songs like Who Can I Turn To? And also uh, lots of other songs like I Want to Be Around. There's numerous other tunes from Tony Bennett that I will always play over and over and over again. They are fantastic tunes. He has left us with an entire generation or generations of a songbook that we can all listen to, sing to, and appreciate. Tony Bennett. 
Thank you very much, Mr. Tony B, for your voice and your passion and your commitment to a better world. Tony Bennett's song, the legendary song, I Left My Heart in San Francisco, is one of the most popular songs of all time. It's a song that plays routinely after every victory of the San Francisco Giants in Major League Baseball here in San Francisco at Oracle Park. Every time the Giants win at the end of that game, you will hear Tony Bennett's song, I Left My Heart in San Francisco. There is probably going to be a tribute to Tony Bennett at Oracle Park, where the San Francisco Giants play. And at the Fairmont Hotel here in San Francisco, there's already been a lot of big-time Tony Bennett fans who have laid flowers at his statue right right outside the Fairmont Hotel here in town. Tony Bennett born in Astoria, Queens. That's right. He was not born here in San Francisco. He is a New Yorker, was a New Yorker, and definitely um, enjoyed New York and was a Queens lad at heart. That he will always be synonymous with this town, San Francisco, and he will always live on through many of us. And again, I was really thankful to be able to see him in concert 20 years ago. And he was terrific. Of course, he was. He collaborated with so many artists through the generations and uh, obviously has left a lasting legacy of terrific, terrific music. And again, I will say uh, my deepest condolences to the family of Tony Bennett. And I want to say once again, thank you very much, Tony B, for all that you have given us, all the memories and all of your great music that will live on forever. Rest in power and rest well. Dear listener, you can follow me on Twitter at the popcorn R E E L on Spill. You can download that from the Apple App Store at the popcorn R E E L on Spill. Actually, I'm at popcorn reel on Spill. That's popcorn R E E L on Spill on Spoutable. The same thing. You can download the Spoutable app from Android or App Store on Apple. And I am at Popcorn R-E-E-L there as well. And of course, on a number of other platforms. And don't forget, dear listener, this podcast is available on Apple, Spotify, Amazon Music, Odyssey, Audible, Pandora, Google, and so many more. So please make sure that you download, pass around this particular podcast, spread the word to your friends, recommend this podcast please and there'll be more episodes of course coming up lots to talk about as we go through the summer here almost at the end of the month of july already i hope you are enjoying your summer dear listener thank you very much for listening to this edition of the politocrat i'm omar moore